ever wondered exactly what John Mark does is, is you can see now it's chaos without him. So he's having a much deserved vacation um, in Alabama this Sunday. <clears throat> but if you would, boys and girls, make sure you have your uh, children's bulletins out. We're going to be referring to that. And for the rest of you, we'll be continuing uh, going through Ecclesiastes. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, uh, looking at the first six verses there. It's printed for you in the ESV translation in your bulletin. <clears throat> and before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. You know, Father, as we come before your Word this morning, Lord, we confess that we want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering. Oh, Lord, show us Jesus today, alive and glorious. Oh, we ask this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I have a friend who is a uh, contractor in Baghdad. Uh, he's a paramedic for a security con- uh, contractor there. So he works six months, is home for three months, back working six months. And I was, I was his pastor when he first got the job. And he was really excited about it, and he got to go off to Georgia for his training. And he called me at the end of the first day and was telling me all about his training. He's like, oh, man, it was great. We, were like, we learned how to breach into a building. We learned how to do offensive driving and defensive driving. I got to shoot all these weapons. He goes, I got to repel out of a helicopter. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, he's a former Marine, so that's not, that's not new for him. I was like, I, I thought you were medical staff. And he goes, oh man, Pastor Sean, this is the best part. They told us in training this morning that most often the situation on the ground in Baghdad is so gritty that most often the best form of triage is to return fire. That's a quote. I know, that's a pretty gritty reality, isn't it? It's like, wow. You think, wow. And he's still doing it, loves it, former Marine, so he's all into that, but... I tell that story because that shocking, funny, gritty reality really is how we're supposed to be looking at this idea of life under the sun. Ecclesiastes is trying to help us who have been in church a while and those who haven't to remember or to understand what it's like to live in a world that denies God. What's the gritty reality on the ground if you're going to live as if God's not there? What Ecclesiastes calls under the sun. If you remember where we've been, we've, we've been in worship of God at the beginning of chapter 5, and then we saw how if we don't worship God, we're going to worship something else, and most often that becomes money, idolatry, and how that greed led to all sorts of junk in life. Because greed, we saw last week or two weeks ago, really is a pointer to the deep, deep loves in our heart, what we really live for. And now we're going to see that, you know, those things that we love, those things we live for, they really don't fulfill us. And so if you would, would you look with me now, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, the first six verses. This is God's word. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years um, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity. And goes in darkness, 
and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So this is God's word. This is a sobering text. It's going to show us that basically it's heartbreaking to live a blessed but joyless, unsatisfied life. A life that no one remembers. But God, we see, gives joy, satisfaction, and significance to his people. So if you think about that, kind of distill this text down, we get to our theme today. Here's what I want you to remember. Again, John Mark's on vacation, so we had to do the bulletins very early this week. There's no sentence in there for you, so you might want to write this one down. Here's what we're going to talk about today. A remarkable life under the sun is heartbreaking without the friendship of God. That's where we're going to go today. You can have a remarkable life as the world defines it, but actually it's heartbreaking without the friendship of God. Because as we're going to see, hopefully, being remarkable can't compare to being abundant in the sun. And so let's dive into this and look at a remarkable life under the sun. I want, you, I want to begin by, I want, I want you to get out of your world, and I want you to get into the mind of an ancient Near Eastern man. Oh, let's say about 3,000 years ago, where this, when this book was written. I want you to think about this, ask these questions. What does he dream of? What does he really want out of life? What does a successful, fulfilling life look like to him? Well, verse 2 tells us it's having money, having more stuff having fame, having honor. Verse 3 tells us it's also lots of kids and a long life. Verse 6 tells us it's even living 2,000 years. And can you imagine that? He was a teenager when Jesus started his ministry. It's still around today. Whoa. See, all of that would be seen as an ultimate blessing from God. Now, what this text is doing, he's setting up, he's, he's giving us an idealized picture of the dream life, a remarkable life, someone who has it all. And it's interesting to read something from 3,000 years ago that basically says the same things that we want today, don't we? Money, stuff, notoriety. It appears that people really haven't changed that much. Which encourages me. I mean, I can read this text and I can, oh, I can see it. They're just like us, right? They're, they're going to head on down to Al-Khabib's chariot emporium. And they're going to check out the 935 models because they're so much better than the 936s. You can see them. They get up really early and they all go down to the fig store and they wait in line to get the new wearable eye sundial because it's so much better than what we used to have. And it's got the fig on it, so it's better. See, one of the things Ecclesiastes shows us over and over again is that people don't change. Life under the sun is life under the sun. So what is the dream life in our culture? What's the remarkable life in our culture? What do most people want? Is it not more money, more stuff, more notoriety, more fame? See, those are deep, abiding issues. I want you to see that here, not just say, okay, I don't really relate to this. Yes, you do. This is talking about the deep desires of your heart. Look with me at that description in the middle of verse 2 there. Here's how he says it. You can see this is about us as well. He says, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. We could actually translate that alternately as he denies his heart nothing it lusts after. It's a little more intense, isn't it? 
See, that's a deep-seated desire. That is a whatever this man craves, whatever he, even if it's an inappropriate craving, he does not deny it. He gets it. You see, in a world under the sun, a world lived with no reference to God, life is getting what our hearts want, how we identify. And you and I know that we default to wanting these same things, don't we? And our non-Christian neighbors they want these things, same things, and they think that's what will make them happy. But it won't. Because instead, this remarkable life is actually a heavy sickness. Look with me at verse 1 together. It says this. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. And then he gives that description of the ideal life we just looked at. Then in verse 2, he goes on to say, Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. We could actually translate that last part as it is a sickening evil. See, and now we get to the gritty reality on the ground. This person has everything they could want to be happy, yet they have no joy. Because the joy is also a gift from God. Joy is not automatic from those things. Joy and happiness are separate from money, stuff, fame, and accomplishments. It's not automatic, but in our culture under the sun, it's assumed those things are automatic, right? You get more money, you get more happy. You get more fame, you get more joy. I wonder how many of us in the room assume automatic joy and happiness if we had more money, more stuff, more fame. See, to the extent that we churched people believe that such joy is automatic, we're actually living just like unbelievers, aren't we? Now, I want to go back and I want to ask, why am I calling this a gritty reality? Because this text won't let us avoid the hard truth that's in verse 2, if you saw it. It's this. God withholds contentment and joy. God won't let people be happy in those things. That's a hard truth. I want to make sure we all get the feeling of that. So let's all look together at the kids' translation of verse 2. Boys and girls, make sure you have your bulletin here. What we say for you in verse 2. God gives people riches and fame. They get themselves anything their heart craves, but God does not let them enjoy all their stuff. Instead, a stranger gets it. That's so frustrating. It's like a bad sickness. He's not going to let them be happy. Our sovereign, powerful God is not going to let them be happy in that stuff because He is the source, not those things. This is why it doesn't matter how much we try to dress up Christianity. It doesn't matter how much we try to be relevant. The gospel of Jesus Christ is fundamentally at odds with the culture under the sun. We are seeing this radically in our day and age, aren't we? The assumption of our culture right now is what? If my heart craves it, if this is how I identify as the language that you're hearing a lot, then not only should I get it, but it should automatically make me happy, right? Right? But Scripture contradicts and says, no, not necessarily. 
You may get everything you want and still be miserable. And can I just say as an aside with the direction our culture is taking, especially with the Supreme Court case from five weeks ago, the church is going to become more and more relevant as a refuge to people who get everything they think they want and they're still not happy. And they're going to be empty and defeated. And the church is going to do what the church has done for 2,000 years. It's going to grab the debris from a profligate society and it's going to put it back together into something beautiful just like god did with us right that's a great time to be in the church in america have hope because we get to show people where true joy and happiness comes but even in the midst of that hope don't overlook this gritty reality here it is god himself who withholds joy If you don't have joy and happiness in your life, that means it's because God is withholding it from you. Now, there's a sort of contradiction here that should be bothering you if you're paying attention. This pastor philosopher, he draws our attention to this serious evil that weighs humanity down in the first couple verses. And then he says it's God's fault because the harsh reality, the the heavy evil is they have no joy. That's harsh to say, isn't it? You see, this search for happiness, this search for joy through money, through stuff, through fame, that search is a sickening evil if at the end of it you don't have any happiness or joy. And we don't have it under the sun because God won't let us. In case you think I'm overstating the case, let's look again at verse 2. How does God's word put it? It says what? God does not give him power to enjoy them. Literally, God does not give permission to enjoy those things. He is actively withholding joy from those things. Now, you can get all bent out of shape at this point. You can start complaining, that's not fair. I don't want to worship a God who does that, you know, whatever. Or you can be sobered by our God's severe mercy. He won't let his creatures be happy in unbelief without him. Our ultimate joy and fulfillment is found with him. And so he won't let us be happy apart from him. And it's a severe mercy. It's not cruelty. As as that difficult truth is kind of soaking in, there's two ways you can use that. First is this. If you have adult-ish children who've kind of walked away from the faith, don't pray they'd be happy. Pray the truth of this verse. Something like, Lord, withhold joy from them in the things of this world so their desperate, craving hearts will come back to you. That's a hard prayer, I know. But it's only in friendship with God through the gospel that they're going to be happy. It's not in those things. You don't want them to be happy in those things. You want them to be truly happy and say, Lord, make this verse true. Withhold joy and draw them back. Second, for those of you who've been in church for a while, don't forget what life was like before Christ. Our neighbors who don't know Jesus, this is right where they are. They're trying to get joy and contentment and happiness from money and stuff and accomplishments, and God will not let them. Not because he's cruel, but because he's not cruel. It's cruel to let people be happy in this life and die and go to hell because of their sin. But it's a severe mercy 
to have people be unhappy so they might seek happiness in Him and find reconciliation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ and eternal life. It's better to have a lack of joy now so they will turn back to Him. And that's where your neighbors are. Your neighbors who don't know Christ are working themselves to death trying to find happiness and it's not working And a God who's powerful enough to withhold that kind of joy from them, dear flock, hear me, is the God who's powerful enough to have you live next to them for the specific purpose of showing them the source of true joy and happiness. But we don't because we've kind of forgotten how miserable non-Christians really are, haven't we? For some of us it's been so long. And we've so insulated ourselves, we don't really hang out with non-Christians that much. Let this text remind you of the gritty reality your non-Christian neighbors live in. Let it turn your heart back to Jesus and praise for what he's done for you. And let it turn your heart to your neighbors that you might tell them so they can find this too. Because a remarkable life under the sun is just actually a heavy sickness. It's not freedom. It's not joy. And also this text tells us it's a restless tragedy. This pastor philosopher, to make his point, now he gets really harsh. Even crass, you could say. I mean, a large family and a long life were tangible blessings in that culture. And then look with me at verse 3. What does he say about the man who has those blessings? He says this, he says, But his soul is not satisfied with life's good, good things. And he also has no burial. And I say that a stillborn or miscarried child is better off than he. What? How dare he? I'm serious. I mean, there's a reason Nikki and I have a big age gap between two of our kids. Just like some of you, we've endured the pain of a miscarriage. This verse, does, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, this verse ticked me off when I was studying it this week. See, but it's supposed to shock us. Because Ecclesiastes is all about having that honest, gritty conversation about life. Scripture is not afraid to say that life under the sun is often disappointing and full of pain. And since Scripture is honest about that, we should be too. Most of us have forgotten what it's like to live without Christ, haven't we? Most of us have forgotten what it's like not to be experiencing the ongoing friendship of God or perhaps we're so angry about the direction of our country, we just don't care anymore. Either way, one of our biggest motivations for evangelism should be the misery deep inside the hearts of our neighbors who don't know Christ. Let this gritty reality remind you, God says that that misery is so intense that it's better to have been miscarried than to live without God. Do we really believe that? You know, sometimes the best way to share the gospel is to be real and admit how frustrating life is. And ask, how do you deal with it? And then listen. Rarely do non-Christians have a better answer aside from, I kind of just deal with it. I don't think about it much. Just like, life is pain. Perhaps we might have a better answer. 
in case you think I'm getting a little harsh, using preacherly hyperbole, going overboard, I want to share with you an article from the Wall Street Journal. This article was asking why Americans are so prosperous and yet so unsatisfied. The writer basically wants to know, why is it so hard to be happy? And so he consults some experts, and one of the experts has this really interesting response. Here's what this one expert says in the midst of this article. He says this. He goes, well, we aren't built to be happy. Rather, we are built to survive and reproduce. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors didn't struggle mightily to protect and feed their families. The promise of happiness, meanwhile, is just a trick to jolly us along. That's the answer under the sun. Do we have a better answer that we could offer, perhaps? See, all our culture can offer is, well, happiness is just a trick. Sorry. And even if they're right, why do we still desperately hunger for happiness? And we do, don't we? It's a deep need that cannot be ignored, and that's the tragedy in this text. In spite of all his wealth, in spite of all his fame, in spite of his big family and his long life, this idealized man has no fulfillment and no meaning, and it's better off if he had been stillborn, miscarried. See, and not only that, it gets even worse. He says, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a remarkable life like these verses or an average life or a wasted life. Verse 6 says, you know what, we're all in the same boat. It ends with what, do not all go to one place, meaning the grave, meaning death. We all die anyway, so what's the point of life under the sun? See, no matter how you idealize life in this world, death still awaits. And it makes life itself not worth living because this world is all there is that is where our culture is that is where your neighbors who don't know jesus are they may not be philosophical enough to think it out in those terms but it's what's making them miserable because they're living without any purpose they're living without any assurance that they matter and they have no freedom to be happy because they're in bondage to trying to find happiness everywhere they look Oh, see, Ecclesiastes is a very philosophical book. You probably noticed that. But it's also very practical. It helps us understand our world, and it helps us understand our unbelieving neighbors. We live in post-Christian America. We need to just all, almost, I almost want to make you say that out loud. I'm not, but we, you need to say this. We live in post-Christian America. That's the reality of where we are. The Christian worldview the, the Christianized understanding of things was the unifying principle of our country. Absolutely. I'm not saying that America was full of Christians, but what I'm saying is that America operated out of these categories for a long time. It does not anymore. Our neighbors assume, without really even thinking about it, that this world is all there is. They live as if there is no God. Or if there is a God, he doesn't really have much to do with us. And that worldview makes people miserable, and they don't even know why. And Ecclesiastes reminds us of why they're so miserable. I am desperate for y'all to understand the plight of your neighbors. And I finally found, I think, a really good resource that, that puts this into clear language. Um, there's a, a guy, he teaches at Duke University. He wrote a book recently called uh, The Atheist's Guide to Reality. And what's great about this book, I'm, I'm I'm not recommending you buy it, but here's what's great about this book. He is not trying to make the case and convince you to be an atheist. He automatically assumes, as many people should, 
Look, it's America in 2015. You're living like an atheist. You just don't know why. Here's why. Here's how you should actually live. Here's how you should actually think. Because you're already living like an atheist. Here's what that means. Which means it's a little bit more honest. When you're not trying to make a case, instead when you assume, you kind of get more honest. So basically, to use Ecclesiastes language, he's writing to people under the sun. People who assume this world is all there is. And he tells them, here's what you should really believe, but you don't yet, but I'll help you get there. Now, our unbelieving neighbors have not thought about what all this means. I want to be very clear about that. But stuff like this will help us engage them and get them to thinking of these things so we can help them find the answers they really want. So this author, Rosenberg, he writes with a big sense of humor. And his very first chapter, what he does is he lists a bunch of typical questions people have, and he tells them how they should answer them. I just want to go through these questions real quick because it's so eye-opening. Okay, here we go. Here's what he said. Is there a God? No. What's the nature of reality? What physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance, which is kind of funny. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Let that one sink in for a second. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. What is love, and how can I find it? Love is the solution to a strategic interaction problem. Don't look for it. It will find you when you need it. I have no idea what that means. If you can translate that, I would love to talk to you. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It always helps to quote Shakespeare, right? It's full of sound and fury, but signifies nothing. That's the world under the sun. This is how people should answer if they're going to say there is no God, or at least if there is, he's not really involved in my life. I kind of think this world is all there is. This is how people should answer. And this is how the world is. I guess I have to find my happiness here, right? And here's what's so great. You don't know anybody who answers that way, do you? And neither do I. Because those answers don't satisfy the deep cravings of our hearts. But we do have an answer that does. So in the end, if everybody dies, if everybody goes to the same place, what do we do? We introduce them to someone who didn't go to the same place. Or who did but who came back? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because in Him, instead of a remarkable life under the sun, in Him we find an abundant life in the sun. Ecclesiastes asks the question, what happens if you get everything you want? And then it answers, well, without the friendship of God through the gospel, you will not be happy. But deep down, we want to be happy. We want joy. And you know, what do we do? We try to suck joy out of our possessions. We try to squeeze it out of our bank accounts. We try to wring joy out of our relationships. And we never find enough. Those things never satisfy us, do they? 
See, but the amazing truth is that God does want us to have that deep joy. That's why he withholds the shallow joy, because he wants us to have deep joy. There's this famous overused quote by C.S. Lewis. I don't have a slide about it. It's about how we're like poor street urchins in a back alley in London playing in the mud pies when someone has offered us a day at the beach. But we don't accept that because we don't even know what that means. It's just too big of a category. And his whole point is this. His point is that it's not that this thirst for joy and happiness is so strong it's ruining our life. No, it's that it's so weak we settle for the joy of money, fame, and relationships when God is offering us the joy of the Creator. Our joy is not too strong, it's too weak. Our thirst for joy should be so profound that we cannot find it anywhere but in God. See, and that's the good news because in the gospel The Creator God has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the connection between our thirsty hearts and that fountain of joy that awaits us. Jesus Christ is the connection between our thirst and God's quenching of it. I want you to see this. You've read this before. You've probably memorized this verse, but see how it works into Ecclesiastes. Remember John 10.10? So many people memorize that, right? I have come that may have life and have it abundantly. See, Jesus Christ wants us to have an abundant, joy-filled, satisfying, remarkable life. We're supposed to have that even now under the sun. It's a radical concept, isn't it? Let this truth wash over you. Jesus Christ has come to give you an abundant, overflowing, joyful life of satisfaction and purpose now. Not just then. Oh, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior but you're still dissatisfied in your life. You're not experiencing this fullness. You're most likely looking to do something to create this fullness, to to tap into this abundant life somehow through your activity, your devotion, your, your worship life, or whatever it is. Instead, you're supposed to sit back and do what Jesus Christ said. What did he say? Abide in me. Rest in me. Or to use language we're more used to hearing, place daily your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for an abundant life, not in your behavior. And in in doing that, it will flow from you. Stop looking to your own religious efforts. Stop looking to your devotional life. Stop looking to the things you do and simply rest in Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel and this abundant life can be yours. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, this gospel is available to you. Because Jesus Christ experienced the tragedy of verses 4 and 5 by going to a death he didn't deserve. Jesus Christ voluntarily miscarried his life so you don't have to endure a miscarried life now. Instead, through his voluntary tragedy, abundant life is offered to you. Oh, but there's even more. To, to a hopeless culture that sees nothing past death. When Jesus Christ burst forth from the grave on that third day, he proved there is something beyond death. He proved that there is more than just what you see in this world and that his abundant life cannot be stopped. It is our privilege then as his people to take that abundant life to our neighbors, 
to show them the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ who has given us this abundant life, and they can have it too. And they're thirsting for it, and they want it. And can I just say, if you don't know how to do that, join the club. But guess what? We're going to have evangelism training four Sundays in August. Child care is available. It's going to be from 5.30 to 6. Child care will be there from 5.15 on. It's on a Sunday afternoon. you got nothing else going on. We'll take care of your kids. You have no excuses, so come. And you're going to learn a great way to share the gospel with Orangeburg. And then maybe be, between now and Christmas, we can mess Orangeburg up with the gospel. With an army of trained people who will know how to share this abundant life. You'll hear more about that. Put it on your calendar right now. The, the second, third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of August. So for all of us, and we'll close with this, this joyful, abundant life is yours for the taking. It's offered to you in Jesus Christ. This abundant life, full of joy, rooted in satisfaction, giving you real significance and purpose. Everything your heart desires is right here in the gospel. So cast off, cast off everything you think you know about Christianity. Everything you've called religion or that you grew up with, set it aside right now. Let it go and rest in Jesus Christ alone by placing your faith and trust in Him as the resurrected Lord. And He will give you this abundant life. Now let's pray together. Father God, we do thank You for the promises of Your gospel. Lord, we thank You that You have promised to us this abundant life this amazing grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, would you help us to grab onto it yet again? And Lord, for those of us who have, would you help us to remember what you have saved us from? Would you give us compassion for our unbelieving neighbors? And then would you give us passion to help them as they're searching relentlessly and fruitlessly for joy when we have the abundant life of Christ to offer. Give us courage. Give us love for our neighbors. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.